Church, how's everybody doing? Good for you. I want to thank Pastor Gary for giving me this incredible challenge of uh, speaking today. It's a privilege to be speaking in this church and uh, in this uh, series that uh, we have been studying for quite a while, quite a long time. Uh, we are going through the stained glass uh, in our church, we're going around the stained glass uh, here in our church, and we're learning uh, this, this, uh, at this time. We're talking about the church of God, and uh, we're talking about uh, specifically the book of Revelation, where we learn about the seven churches of uh, the book of Revelation. And specifically, we are studying today the church of Sardis and uh, the church of uh, Philadelphia. And... Uh, Thank you, Richard, so much for the reading of the text that uh, kind of help us to understand a little bit more about uh, the background of, uh, of the message um, today. I would like to start by asking you if you can recall, uh, what is the most prestigious, what is the most reputable place that you have ever known or that you have ever heard about? Think for a second. If somebody wants to shout it out, please do so. I don't mind people talking when I'm preaching. But think about what is the most prestigious place that you have ever heard about it, or the most prestigious and reputable place that you have ever known or heard about. Think about this for a second. I remember when I was taking a class at La Sierra University, taking a class in education, and I remember one of our teachers talking about a new high school in San Diego that, if I'm not mistaken, is called uh, San Diego High Tech High. And the concept of the school was amazing. I've never been there. I want you to know this. I read a little bit about it. But I heard that this school had a different concept where technology was a big part of the education in that school. Students would come and gather around an instructor, not a teacher, an instructor, a facilitator. And this instructor, this facilitator, would help the kids to be on task and find different technological tools to present and learn the objectives they had to learn for that specific class. So when I heard that, when I heard the reputation of this school and what they were doing, I said, this is cutting edge and I want to do this as well. I'm not sure if you know where I came from. I was teaching in Calexico. So when I went home and I started thinking about what to do in terms of using technology in my classroom, I was a little disappointed because uh, we did not have all the resources to do the same. So to make a long story short, I came to our IT, Mr. Sergio Jacobo, a good friend of mine, and I said, Mr. Jacobo, I need all the computers I can put my hands on, I can get my hands on. And he said, Gilbert, we don't have uh, computers available. And I said, give me anything. He said, Gilbert, we don't have computers. And then he looked at me, he said, I didn't know you're teaching computer science or technology. Aren't you the Bible teacher? Even though I was teaching, 
other subjects at that time, science and world history and other things. It's true, I was still the religion teacher. So Mr. Jacobo started getting all the computers he could put his hands on, and he started bringing to my class one by one. So I got about 10 desktop computers all around my classroom, and they all had Word and PowerPoint and Excel, and uh, yes, the kids could access Google. And we started right there. For the next two years, I lived my life under the concept, under the idea that I had to do that kind of thing in my class because I heard of the reputation of a school that was doing that and they were very successful, even though I had never been in that school. Then when I left Calexico, coming to Corona, and starting to teaching at last year Academy, I said, now it's the time that I will now enjoy a nice classroom with good uh, internet connection and good computers, and uh, yes, we're going to be doing all that kind of stuff. And don't get me wrong, we did a lot in two years. The textbook became only like a, a part of the resource for the kids, and uh, in my classroom, the kids will come up with PowerPoint presentations and games, and uh, they will write their own songs. I had a piano in my classroom, and uh, we did a lot of fun stuff. I had a couple different monitors around my classroom. I could monitor every single one of the computers through a software that I bought. It was fun. And every time a kid would sneak in and go to their Facebook account, I could either block from my computer, if I saw it, or I could embarrass him in front of everybody and say, Isaac, I can see you're on Facebook now. Quit it, or you're going to go back to your seat. So I enjoyed that. But I remember when I was here at La Sierra Academy, I was always, there was always my dream to teach there. I always wanted. And when I came in, I started thinking, I heard the reputation of La Sierra Academy as well. I heard what they're doing in their computer lab. I heard about their internet service. I heard the kids have access to internet and all that kind of stuff. So when I started teaching there, I was like, Maybe reality is a little different than what I thought it would be. You hear reputation. You hear that some places they have so much prestige and you put all your coins on it and the reality is much, much different. The reason I'm telling you all this is because the church in Sardis was a church that had so much reputation, an incredible, prestigious city, a, a, a city that would actually stay on a, on a high hill that was about 1,500 feet tall, and anybody that would look to that city, the city of Sardis, they would wonder how anybody could ever take over that city or march to its front gates and the take over that city. In fact, they say that by the time when John is writing this letter to the church of Sardis, they say that for about 700 years before the time of John, right around when he's writing this letter, only twice this incredible city with so much prestige and reputation was ever overcome. 
was ever breached in by enemy forces. Only twice in 700 years. And uh, they say that both times when this city was invaded, it was because there was a weaker point, a weak point in the southern part of the city. And uh, if anybody would be able to reach the city through the southern gates to the southern part of the city, they would have a big shot in terms of uh, taking over the city. And both times, the church was attacked. The city of Sardis was attacked from that part that was not well guarded, the southern part. I also read some information about the city as well, that uh, anybody that would be looking from Sardis out of its 1,500 feet cliff, that you could see a, 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 a like a, you, could, you could see a, a vision of a, a burial place that would go for miles and miles and miles and miles. And that would be the remembrance that uh, the city of Sardis was so strong and so powerful that nobody could breach in, nobody could do anything to overcome that city, to overtake that city. And people would look at that burial place that would go for seven miles or so, and they will be reminded of how strong that city was. So much reputation. So much prestige was the city of Sardis. I would like to read the very first few verses with you, and I would like you to join with me, join with me to these texts and try to understand the reason why John is probably writing this letter to the city. And I hope that now we can understand a little bit more about what is really going on during the time when John writes this letter, inspired by the Lord Jesus to this city that had a small congregation of believers at the time. So if you turn to your Bibles, if you have your pew Bible there, it's on page 1029, 1029, you will come to the book of Revelation chapter 3. And... Uh, we're going to read a few verses together, and uh, hopefully we're going to be able to make some comments about uh, these verses to, try to, to help us try, under, to try to understand a little bit more about uh, this city. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, or the seven churches of God. I know your deeds, you, Sardis, have a reputation. You have a reputation, Sardis, of being alive, but you're dead. Verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die as well. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. And remember, therefore, what you have received and what you have heard, hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will know at what, you will not know at what time I will come to you. 
How incredible it is the connection of the conditions of the city of Sardis with this text. Now that we read a little bit more about this city that has so much reputation of being an incredible and uh, arguably speaking, one of the most powerful and glorious churches among the seven churches that we have been studying. This church had to face a reality. Remember what you have received. And the church in Sardis was now under the very same influence of the city of Sardis, hiding behind its glory, hiding behind its reputation. And when John writes this letter to, this, to the church in Sardis, in the city of Sardis, John is telling the people in there, I know as well your reputation, and I know that you have been hiding behind this. But in reality, you're dead. I'm not sure about you, but... Uh, how would you feel if you had received a letter from John and the pastor of your church would be standing up behind a pulpit and reading that text for you if you lived in Sardis? I know your reputation, but you're dead. What an incredible, incredible letter this was. The Christians in Sardis, as we read in verse 1, they are not blamed for any specific sin or heresy like we saw in the other churches that we have been studying. What they have been criticized for was that they were still living under this reputation that they thought they had, but they're blamed for being lifeless. The New Testament makes great references to sin and death. I would like you to go with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 1. On your pew Bibles, it's page 976, 976. Let's read this Bible text where uh, we learn a little bit about the reference to sin as death in the Scriptures. The book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 1. And in your pew Bibles, it's page 976. Look what it says there. 976 in your pew Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and your sins. So this is an incredible clue that probably this church in Sardis that was now hiding behind its reputation, now this church was pretty much dead because of uh, its own sins. Look at now at this other reference in the book of Luke, chapter 15, verse 24, on your pew Bibles, page 875. 875, if you'd like to go there with me. 875. And we are reading Luke, chapter 15, 
verse 24, page 875 in your pew Bibles. This is the story of the prodigal son. This young man that took everything that he thought it was right for him to have, even before his father's passing, and uh, he takes all that money, all that inheritance, and he spends it all. And look what this text says on regards to his sin and on, re on regards to what he's doing. Luke 15, 24, it says, For this my son was dead when he's coming back home. This my son was dead, and now he is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. Look how incredible it is that our spiritual journey, when we hide behind reputation, when we hide behind what we think that people can see, how miserable our situation might be according to this text. That even though we may look good inside, we can be totally dead. That's the message on the very first verses to the church in Sardis. Another piece of historical information I'd like to share with you. It says here by a man called Barclay, a writer of the first century. He says that uh, when the Romans celebrated war victory, all the citizens of Rome, they would be encouraged to be clothed in white in order to celebrate their victory as their soldiers would come home. The white robe promised to the Christians Already, also in Sardis, is also an incredible historical reference. When Jesus is saying, when you celebrate your Roman soldiers coming back home from a war victory, I want you to know that I too will give you the opportunity to be dressed like me in white and with those that have been remaining faithful to my God. What an incredible reference there. Pastor Gary has been explaining to us that we have been studying the book of Revelation and today in the 21st century if you do some interesting studies on the book of Revelation you we will come up with four different ways of interpreting the book of Revelation and many people they rely heavily on something that is called historicism meaning that the church the churches of the book of Revelation had not only its fulfillment in the first century for those literal seven churches, but those stories and those conditions would continue to repeat throughout the centuries. And we can find so many incredible connections with the churches throughout the centuries with those churches of the first century. It is believed that the condition of the church of Sardis is also represented by the condition of the church during the 16th and 17th centuries. That is named by some people as the Protestant scholasticism. A period of time where people got 
very carried away with, we got to go back to our origins, but very soon the church is start getting again into the political ways of doing religion, and the church once again is start to drift back to what or from where they had come from. I would like to read verses 4 and on for you again. It says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis that have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white, and I will never blot out their name or the name of that person from the book of life, but I will acknowledge his name before my father. It is believed that during those days, as well, during the time of the Roman Empire, anybody who would pass away, anybody who would die, immediately they would take their name out of their books and forever the name would be forgotten during the first century. And now Jesus and John, they're using that reference saying, yes, when you die, yes, when this is no more for you, your name will be taken away, but it's not so with my Father in heaven. Your name will be written, not in the books of the Roman Empire, but your name will be written in the book of the Lamb, and you will never be forgotten. What incredible references to the first century. References that we could, for sure, apply today. Reputation can be one thing, my dear brothers and sisters. But a reality can be something totally, totally different. I would like to briefly talk about the church in Philadelphia as well. And I would like to ask you to have your Bibles ready in the book of Revelation, starting on verse 7, so we can walk through this church as well. Verse 7 in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. And before we get into the church of Sardis, I would like to remind you of the situation and the circumstances in which this church faced. I'll never forget in 2008, Sunday, Eastern Sunday morning, my wife and my family, we were coming out of a restaurant when we lived in Calexico. And 30 miles away from where we were, it hit with might. It hit with vengeance. And we were in the parking lot experiencing a 7.2 earthquake that lasted for 55 seconds. I remember being outside of the car and looking and trying to understand what was going on because that car and the cars around and the palm trees, they were waving and the cars were moving forward. And we saw on the parking lot of Walmart where we could see from the restaurant that we were, we saw those trucks. They were waving back and forth and they were moving in the palm trees. And that thing hit for 55 seconds, the very first earthquake, 7.2. I had so much uncertainty for the future. The only thing we could think of was, what is going to happen to my family? What in the world is going to happen to my kids? 
And then right after that earthquake, we had immediately one falling, and it was following, and it was another 6.5 earthquake. Our, our cell phones were not working, and later on, 45 minutes later on, we start getting phone calls of people that were worrying about us, and they were concerned about us, and, but we could not even get a signal there. We heard explosions. We heard people screaming and yelling and running down the streets. And instead of going home, we, for whatever reason, decided to go to school. We went back to Calexico Mission School, and I was concerned about what was happening to the school or what happened to the school. And as we went there, we could feel many, many, many other earthquakes to the point that we could not even go inside of the classrooms because they kept on hitting and they were so hard and so shaky. For the next week and a half, we experienced about 1,600 aftershocks that went anywhere from 3.0 all the way up to 6.0. That city was shaking nonstop. We had hundreds of earthquakes a day, and we were concerned for our lives. Our kids, they were so distressed that on day four, my wife and I decided to put the kids in the car and go to San Diego and rent a room there in a hotel for a couple days and take the kids to the, to the beach because we were so afraid of what was going to happen to us there in Calexico. Our future was uncertain. And the reason I'm telling you this story now is whatever happened there in Calexico with our experience was somehow the experience of the church in Philadelphia. A church that had gone through so many earthquakes. A church that anybody would live in that place would be called mad and crazy. And all those people living in, in Philadelphia were the ones who stayed behind and remained faithful to their little church, remained faithful to that little city, but people that were constantly reminded that something really bad could happen to them and they could be totally destroyed and killed. That was the reality of the church in Philadelphia. Uncertainties. And I would like you to come with me and read again some few verses so we can try to understand maybe one of the reasons why John wrote that letter to that city. And it says on verse 7, to the, church, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, verse 8. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And I know that you have little strength, oh, Philadelphia, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I, Philadelphia, have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon, he continues to say, and hold on to what you have 
so much tragedy, so much going on in the city, and here we see a group of people that were holding on to the truth of God found in the Church of Philadelphia. We have a, a reference here in one of the book of the Bible, one of the books of the Bible, that says that this whole idea of someone having the key of David is also found in the Old Testament time, when people would be giving the key to the palace, and only people that would come through these people, these officials, they could have the right and the blessing and the privilege of coming before the presence of the king. And now during this time, Jesus is saying, I also have the keys. But now, you don't have an official to tell you, you can come into the presence of King David. Because Jesus is the one who has the key to the presence of the king. This letter also reminds us that uh, there was a group of people that were giving a hard time to the believers in the city of Philadelphia. And they are called the synagogue of Satan. And I have read through some books that most people believe that the synagogue, the synagogue of Satan was pretty much a group of believers, a group of Jews, that they would be following every single time Paul or any of the apostles, every single time they would go to a town to evangelize that town and telling them that, yes, the Gentiles can come into the kingdom of God as well. Jesus has died for, the, for them as well. Every time they would go to these places, these Judaizers, they would come and tell them, yes, but... You have to become a Jew before you become a Christian. And here in this text, if I, am, if I am understanding it correctly, the synagogue of Satan represents those who would persecute the people in Philadelphia, telling them that they were not good enough. And how many times we ourselves have done that to other brothers and sisters that go to different churches than ours. Try to make them Jews before they become Christians. But a question remains, what to do to revive a church? Can you help me real quick to say, what would you do to revive a church if you're living in the, in the, in the first century? What would you do if you were the pastor, if you were, were one of the elders there? What did you do to revive a that church. Anybody? I was having this conversation with someone and somebody said, yes, we got to have a better worship service and we got to put more music there. That's a way of doing it, isn't it? More music, more fun. For those of you that love the drums, let's not go there. What else can we do? And some people say more activities and we have to have more activities and have the church open day and night so people can come to church. That, that would do it as well, isn't that right? When you have more activities in the church. I was asking this question to one of my friends this week and they say, brother, for you to wake up a church, you have to start doing more screaming and scaring them and telling them that yes Jesus is come and if you don't repent you are not going to make it and if you scream and do all that kind of stuff people will get scared 
people will wake up and people will finally become better and good Christians. There's so many ways we can go about to make a church revive, isn't that right? But I think in verse 4, we start finding some answers for the church in Philadelphia. We see here that when we remain faithful to God, we see here that when we rely on the sacrifice of the Lamb, we then will have a new name. We will then, like a slave in the first century, we would be branded with the name of our God and the name of our city in our foreheads. And in the book of Revelation chapter 6, it says, it's not time yet until we mark all my followers, until we mark all of those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. The church in Sardis dealt with the problem with reputation and reality, and the church in Philadelphia dealt with the problem of uncertainty. Those who believe that the book of Revelation continued to be fulfilled throughout the centuries, they believe that this is the time when the church actually is experiencing during the 17th and 18th century and on the time of Reformation. The time when the church is now going back to the scriptures and telling everyone to remain faithful to the word of God, which we had deviated so much from. I believe that today the message for our church is if you are living under reputation alone, beware that your reality in the eyes of God can be much different. I believe that if a pastor would be preaching a sermon back then in the church of Sardis, he would be preaching a revival meeting where we all should forget about our reputation, forget about uh, what people think we are, and we should go back to God and brand His name and call upon His name and be dressed like the Lamb of God and claim that God will also be merciful and save us from this world. A world with so much uncertainty like the church in Philadelphia that had to deal with so many earthquakes represents a church like today that we're living in, we're living on as well. So many people losing jobs and homes and uh, the economy is still not the way we expect it to be. And if you're facing any trials in your life, in your marriage, whatever it is that you're facing, whatever uncertainties that you're having today, do not forget that the Lord said, I'm coming soon. Remain faithful. I will come for you. Do not forget what you have learned and be prepared. So I pray that God will help you to have a spiritual revival in your life like it was encouraged, like it was sent to the church in Sardis. That your homes, that uh, your families, they will consecrate themselves even more to the Lord and not forget where they came from and what they have learned. And if you are, like in the church of Philadelphia, going through so much uncertainties in your life, never forget the promise. I'm coming soon, and I'll take with me 
those who have remained faithful. Hold on is the message found in the Church of Philadelphia. And the pastoral staff would like you to know that we believe that even though the, the letters written in the book of Revelation were written a couple thousand years ago, we believe with all our hearts that the Lord Jesus Christ is still is among his church today, is still faithful and is still keeping up with his promise that he will come soon and that he will tell you today, like he said 2,000 years ago to the writings of the letters to these churches, hold on, remain faithful. I am coming soon. Forget your uncertainties. I am coming soon. May the Lord bless you as you continue to study this amazing book of Revelation. And uh, if you would like to know more about the book of Revelation, please feel free to talk with your pastoral staff. Pastor Gary's been spending a lot of time reading books, sharing books about uh, the different schools of interpretation. We don't have much time to talk about all of this here, but we will have as well in our website some uh, PDF documents there that will help you to continue to learn and grow in your spiritual journey with God as we study the book of Revelation as well. God bless you.